Welcome to Afro Leads, the podcast. Afro Leads consists of two sisters, myself, Julie and Steph, and we're on a mission to promote UK black business and culture. At present, we have an Instagram platform where we post daily positive posts about black business, people, groups, communities, celebrities, music, and so much more. And today, allow me to introduce our fabulous guest, the wonderful Athena Kublenu. Um, this is an amazing, incredible comedian who, and allow me to gush over this moment, is a member of the BBC Comedy Room 2019-20, a 2017 nominee for the 99 Club Female Comedians Bursary. She regularly writes for BBC Radio 4. She was awarded the BBC Felix Dexter Bursary for BAME and up-and-coming comedy writers in 2020. She was a former BBC New Comedy Award finalist. She's written for Horrible Histories, which I love, the Russell Howard Hour and Radio 4's The Lenny Henry Show, just to name a few of the amazing comedy shows that she's contributed to. In 2017, she performed at the Johannesburg International Comedy Festival. She followed that festival with her debut hour, KMT, at Edinburgh Fringe, which is incredible. Her second celebrated hour was Follow the Leader, a political show with her own personal twist. She's a founding member of Do the Right Scene, which is a London-based improv group, and the podcast, which we absolutely love, keeping Athena company would need me say anymore welcome to the podcast thank you yeah thank you thank you for having me yeah great your work is done I feel great I can go now right it's just yeah <laughs> we absolutely love you. It's really honoured to have you on the um, on the podcast. And as we've mentioned in the intro, your experience is littered with success and black excellence. So we are so gassed to get to know you a bit more and talk about your experience and your journey. So with that being the intro, can you tell us a little bit on how you kind of got into comedy and how it all started, really? Yeah, like I don't know if you've spoken to many comedians. I mean, like we all have kind of different pathways into it. But generally speaking, if you live in a city in the UK or anywhere, you can just walk into most pubs and they'll do a comedy night. This is obviously pre-COVID. And then you can <laughs> jump on. Yeah, this, this is it was actually really sad because it's I don't know how a new comedian will start doing comedy now and in the foreseeable future, which is a problem, I think, generally. But um, many years ago, and I was 2012, I was thinking about how I could make more money. And I, this is genuinely true. I was thinking about how I could make more money and I looked at the... Sunday Times Rich List mm-hmm. and they were, it was full of comedians who I didn't think were very funny and I thought well hold on a minute like <laughs> literally people laugh around me all the time and I was one of those people that people were like oh you should be a comedian whatever so that's why I started and I it's very you know you don't need all you need is a pen and paper right you don't need to take lessons like ballet you know you actually set up or anything you just, <laughs> you just you just start so I, you, I did a comedy course which is like if anyone's thinking of starting comedy I recommend comedy courses not to not to come out of them as fully fledged comedian, but just to get a bit of confidence because mm-hmm. it's a very nerve wracking thing to perform comedy for the first time. And then I just started, then after about two weeks or not even two weeks, I think after my first gig, I realized I wasn't gonna make any money very quickly. <laughs> so that was it. But then I, I also realized that I probably was sort of better at it than I thought. You know, I thought, oh, okay, I can do this. You never, you, you never try doing something and you feel like you've got a knack for it. Like you, someone like juggling. You know, you, it's like some people could, some people are like, this doesn't make any sense. Some people are like, oh, this is really easy. Yeah, so I'm not yeah. saying comedy was easy, but I could sense that my brain worked in a way that was conducive to like writing and performing jokes. I thought, okay, let me see how far I can take this because, you know, it's not easy to make a living in this country doing, going into an office, working and going home again. And when I say living, I don't mean like, you know, sustenance. I mean, living. I mean, having something to give to your children living. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like something that can progress, 
something that means, you know, in 2012, your, your bank account looks like this. In 2020, it looks like something else. You know what I mean? Like, like a proper living. And I had all kinds of experiences in the workplace, which, which made it very clear to me that I was, you know, that, you know, the message got to work twice as hard to get half as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like everything in my life up, for that, up to that point had been evidence of that. Mm-hmm. So I was like, if I continue this way, does that make me smart, <laughs> you know, or should I think of another way to kind of eke out a living? So part of, yeah, it was mainly just to kind of utilise what I thought I'd be good at, but also to maybe try and make a living another way, which, where, which had more opportunity for me. And in the early days, did you use your experiences, like your life, how you navigated in sort of normal life, as it were, to gain a bit of material for your, your early work? Oh, that's interesting. Surprisingly enough, no, I didn't really talk about my work. What I do now, so I have scripts now based on on my life. I used to work in like waste management. I used to work in sustainability. I've had all kinds of jobs as a project manager. The advantage of that is I've got familiarity with lots of different kind of work cultures and industries, which is great. But not in my stand-up. My early stand-up was just awful stuff about, I can't even thematically say I used to talk about X, Y, and Z. It was just silly observations. Yeah. Um, a whole lot of nonsense. My comedy don't only really start to get personal kind of as I got better at comedy. Nice. Was it quite difficult to transition from just being a naturally funny person to actually then kind of being intentional about doing it in terms of writing scripts and things? Is that quite different? It's it's really different. So not everybody who's funny can be a comedian, as you find out when you're on the circuit. <laughs> There's a lot of people who say, oh, you should be a comedian, but no, 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 you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> No, it, you, I, I think what it is, is you have to be really humble. So just just be, just be being able to come out with funny stuff doesn't make you like a good writer or performer. Um, and I always I always knew that. I always knew that I would, like every year I did comedy, I would, for example, I'd like invest in like a course or something. So I used to do like mad courses, like I'd do clowning. I did one in sketch writing. I did an improv course, which then led to starting an improv group. So I always knew I'd have to invest in learning a bit of craft and also like just performing lots to kind of learn myself what I'd have to do. But yeah, it's, it's a big jump, man. Becoming a comedian is not an easy thing to do. It, it's not. As much as I said, oh yeah, yeah, I took to it. What I meant was, you know, I had all the stuff that I needed to kind of come together, but all that stuff coming together, that process is really difficult. Absolutely. I bet it is. I bet it's so nerve-wracking. Because like you say, I, I, I know loads of funny people, but then I think in certain circumstances that, you know, you can sometimes go within yourself because people expect you to be doing one-liners. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, with, com- with comedy, what I say to people is, like, you have to act natural on stage, but act and natural oxy- are oxymoronic. They're not that you can't act natural, right? So you have to get to a stage where being in front of people with a microphone and a, and a spotlight on you and having them stare at you doesn't make you change or if it does make you change it makes you change in a very intentional way so you're playing a character and what you notice yeah so what most people will notice is when they first try comedy or anything that to do with public speaking and if they take for themselves they will play back their early tapes and they'll realize their voice is changing a little bit their cadence is changing a little bit or if they videoed themselves they'll realize they're doing gestures and that's just the human instinct Apparently it's evolutionary. Apparently it's stuff to make us afraid of lions and stuff, right? Because if you leave your cave and those lions are staring at you, you're like, you, you get a bit nervous, right? Or you're not, it's, you know, we're not, we're not supposed, we're not pack animals. So it's, apparently it's evolutionary. I don't know. Um, but, but the more you do it, the more natural it is. So now I can stand in front of any amount of people and speak 
and I'm aware that I'm not doing what I used to do, which was I, I developed a lisp at one point, you know, um, did a lot of um, a lot of jittery arm movements, but practice gets rid of all of that, for sure. And does it make a difference as to who's in the audience? Like if you know that nobody you know is there, is it in some ways easier than if somebody you do know is there? Or... Oh, I'll speak on this. Okay, this is really important. And I think this is really good for anyone that's trying comedy. I didn't tell anyone I was doing comedy for a long time. And to be honest, I still don't tell people what I'm up to. And I'll tell you why. Not everybody is a fan of comedy. Okay, this is a fact. Most, most people don't watch stand-up comedy. Most people I watch, watch it on Netflix maybe, and they might go to a a hen party at a glee club and watch comedy there so when your friends go i'll watch you i'll watch you they're fans of you not stand up and that means does that make sense so that means they they're not necessarily the kind of people that you want to perform stand up to i want to perform that as stand up fans um yeah and it also means you're more likely to to disappoint them because they'll be like oh my god i'm gonna watch my friend who's a comedian and then they're like oh i don't find this funny so you don't like comedy mate do you know what i mean like you're not gonna like me you're not gonna all of a sudden like it because i'm doing it so friend i'm quite selective about which friends and i certainly was at the beginning i was selective about which friends i would literally allow to watch me because i'd be like well you know if this friend isn't into it why would i want to watch you know, if they don't like cheese sandwich, it's not going to make him a cheese sandwich. I don't like it. So it's that, that was generally my attitude. Personally, I prefer to perform in front of strangers because a big part of the com- comedy process is, walk, is to kind of walk onto stage and people make lots of assumptions about you because that's just natural and then you can play with those. But if you've got 10 people in the audience that know you, you've lost like a massive amount of what you, you rely on to make people laugh. Mm-hmm. But also... Look, at the beginning, it's nice to get support, but generally speaking, strangers are just better laughers. Yeah. Because and your friend, your friends do something awful. They laugh. They pretend laugh. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, there's nothing worse. I'd rather silence. I'd rather silence. <laughs> like I don't. There's just no point pretending something I'm doing is funny because if it's not funny, I need to change it. Yeah. You know. So and what happens is, so I'm going on about this, but when you when you are a comedian, if you're like a sane comedian, you won't take it personally if your stuff isn't funny. That's just how it is. Um, And I think your friends find you saying things that aren't funny quite horrible. They're like, oh my God, she said something and no one laughed. And for me, that's fine. Like (laughs) that's that's part of the process. So you have a certain comfort with humiliation and embarrassment that maybe your friends don't have. So that can be quite difficult to deal with because then they're feeling sorry for you. And you're like, no, no, that feels over me. This is part of the process. Like comedy is the only art we construct in front of people. You don't paint in public. You You don't write songs in public. You don't write your novels in public, but you know, so failure is very much a part of comedy because friends don't understand that. It's, I always find it difficult kind of dealing with their, you know, dealing with how they can't deal with like the failures they might witness. And they witness a lot of failures when they come to watch you. That's just how it is. That's fascinating. And before you entered the world of comedy in 2012, had you been aligned to arts in some way, shape or form before? No, I was, uh, I was, like I said, as a project manager, I'd worked up until, so I was 31 then and I just worked and I just, I hadn't entertained anything. I hadn't entertained the idea of being any kind of creative after that. Maybe as a child, I guess, like, you know, when you're young like, and I used to, I used to write for an online magazine, which wasn't like creative, but it was all journalism. This is the first creative endeavour I, I took with any kind of seriousness or application. Yeah. That's incredible. That's yeah, and look, it's such that. a turning point for you, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't realise it at the time. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> if you had told me eight years ago or whatever that I'd, you know, that I'd had the company that I have, as in that, you know, and people would, the people who know me 
like you know like this there's there's just like I'm friends with people who I used to watch on tv all the time or mm. and, you, and you kind of sometimes you can forget to 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 reflect in, on these things so yeah it's a massive turnaround just even like the fact that I can just like turn around scripts and stuff now like I just never imagined I'd do these things but I think that's the thing about comedy like you start off doing stand-up and it's a bit like walking into a house, but there's like lots of doors. So stand up's the first room you get, you open, and then there's another door and you go, oh God, this is a like, sketch writing door. This is really cool. Then like, oh, there's a broadcasting door here. I'll go into that room. And then there's like a podcasting door, I'll go into that room. Then there's a, like a, and then there was obviously like a script writing thing and da 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 da. And so comedy is a really good way to kind of create creative opportunities. Cause it's just, it just, I'm thinking about all the comedians, you know, who like, so like Mo Gilligan, for example, is like, a comedian but he, like, he like hosts tv shows and he hosts award shows and stuff like that so if you've never done anything creative before comedy is probably a good thing to do <laughs> probably because you can find the thing attached to it that best suits you if that makes sense yeah. um but I didn't know any of this at the time I didn't I didn't know and it's probably a good thing because if I'd known how hard it was I wouldn't have done it I just thought I'd just do a few gigs and I'd get famous I mean it's just ridiculous <laughs> it's ludicrous <laughs> I don't know if you thought of that <laughs> Do you think your project management path, so the multitasking, like understanding timescales and all that stuff, does that lend to being to the industry you're in, doing all opening all these doors and having to kind of learn new skills and deliver to different deadlines and work with various people? I'm very organised, but I think it's more to do with age. I because I started comedy a bit older. I started with experience that I noticed maybe other comedians who started younger or young, com- young comedians that I mean don't have like my manager's always telling me like are you okay are you okay you've got a lot of work on it's like this is fine yeah. like this is literally I used to build massive roads so I think my age just coming into it from a kind of more mature background mm-hmm. was more beneficial little things like it's very easy when you perform comedy to just like socialize a lot and go out drinking a lot and getting up to things that maybe you shouldn't get up to whatever but I never expose myself to any of that I just go do my gig say be polite and go home and it's just stuff like that is really helpful because it's just it's not sustainable to live your life any other way if you're performing three or four times a week and also financially like for me some people are like you've got to struggle for your art you know like you know if you want to if you want it you've got to go all in you've got to sacrifice everything but I'm not struggling for my art not this racist industry like no um I was old enough to be able to work good jobs because I was had experience by that point and I was qualified and I was able to kind of have that perspective of well if I keep my day job growing it can sustain my comedy career and that I just think I don't I'm not a great creative when I'm thinking about where my rent's going to come from (laughs) I just can't really prioritize joke writing and then comedy live comedy is not very well paid when you think of live comedy you think of what you see on the telly right and most live that's like the top three percent of comedians in this country most of us are in clubs around just traveling around the country and the, and the world getting you know I mean you can do a gig for 200 quid right and that would be you know that's fine and let's say you do two or three days a week that's 600 quid a week right but like some weeks you might you know you might be working um and then you've got to drive to those gigs you've got a picture in your car and all you know all the expenses that come with that and then you've got to buy your car and all that all that stuff so it's not you know most gigging comedians who you won't have heard of because they're not on the tv but they're working comedians and very well known in the industry they're not like, you know, they're just earning normal, you know, they're not superstar wages or whatever. So for me, it was really important to keep my day job because I didn't, I didn't quit my day job, which was quite good and quite lucrative to just sp- spend 
seven days a week in my car yeah. <laughs> you know that I kind of always wanted to kind of to kind of get to a level of, of success with my comedy where where it could give me the life I thought spoke about earlier which was like not just sustainable but like something that would allow me opportunities because my day job was fine there was nothing wrong with it <laughs> you know what I mean? there was nothing wrong with it so it, if for me to, to to pursue something else I had to be a bit more strategic mm-hmm. with my comedy career to make sure it was worthwhile and in your sort of progression within your industry would you say that there's an equal playing field do you think it, some areas are quite male dominated do you think in essence your color is a barrier or it maybe helps you I don't really know enough about the, your industry other than like you say that top three percent so it's so insightful to to get your impression on that yeah so first of all you know comedy it doesn't exist in a vacuum so any issue you know I mean I know GPs for example I know you know you're a GP and like you know there's issues there right and you know you work in HR so you know so it's there's comedy does not exist in a vacuum and every issue you have outside of comedy you have in comedy so you have do you have sexism of course you have sexism and you get sexism you it's most female comedians have been approached by a member of the audience who said he says something along the lines of I don't normally like women comedians but I like you that's like a very common thing to hear and it's often women who say it as well so there's a real mythology about who is allowed to have humor as a uh, as as an asset or a character trait and who isn't and who we allow to joke about certain things and who we don't and that's that's patriarchy it's, that is it is what it is so that's a massive thing i would say that it's even more pronounced on like the black circuit which is like we don't really talk we don't really talk about like patriarchy in the black community a lot because we're black we've got nothing on our plate <laughs> um and if but the reality is is like if you go to a black comedy show, you probably won't see a woman act on that show. Like, whereas you might get one or two. Look, there were black female comedians who do comedy shows, right? Yeah. It's not rare at all for yeah. a black comedy night to just have all men. Yeah, Like that's just normal. Whereas on the, what they call the mainstream circuit or the white circuit, whatever you want to call it, that's a quite big deal now. Like they'll only want to book like mixed lineups with they book all men. It's kind of like, people point it out or whatever but so there's and it's not even intentional there's not many of us Mm. in the in the black female comedy community and also the black comedy circuit is how can I put this there isn't like a progression thing in the black comedy circuit where you can go to a rubbish gig do all your crap jokes and then do a big gig they're just all big gigs so (laughs) you're either like brilliant it's like sink or swim yeah so if you are a woman and you want to break into that industry it's not an easy you know, sink or swim is like, can be quite frightening in a, in a climate that is dominated by just like extroverted guys with testosterone who walk on the stage and, you know, that stuff. So I definitely, I mean, I always struggled with that. Not everyone does, by the way, but that I personally did. But it's not conducive to addressing that balance is what I'm saying. On the mainstream circuit, like there's a lot of prejudice against the state. It's a different kind of prejudice against women, which is like, they'll book one woman and then that'll be it. Like we've got women on the lineup now, so so it's not even that much further progressed. It's sort of like marginally more progressed. But if you, you look at the industry, like there wasn't a woman comedian who has like a, a TV show, for example. I mean, it's getting better with like the sitcoms and stuff. And then race. I mean, yeah, everyone knows it's really challenging to be like a person who isn't white in the creative industries in this country. It's just not a secret. And there was a really good documentary that like Mo Gilligan did about black British comedians. I don't know if you caught it. Um, no, just, I like, just, that. I'll, I'll oh definitely it. it's on channel four it was on channel four so it'll be on um all four okay. and it's just it's just basically you know there's a generation of comic talent in this country that 
was has been denied a lot of work and success and appreciation but it doesn't make any sense because then there are people who get that success and appreciation you think well these guys aren't any good these guys aren't any and they and also and this is something this is a point that Dane Baptiste makes he's another comedian and it's a really good one it's like a lot of these comedians who are big in this country they're big here they can't be big anywhere else no one cares about the white British experience nothing travels better or travels better around the world than the immigrant story you know you can take the comedy of a black comedian stick it in America stick it um, in Europe, stick it in Asia, and it's funny, but there's there's this real kind of comedy circuit of famous English comedians going to Australia, and they perform, and then they come back, and it, it's like a real, I, want, I guess what I'm trying to say is, there's a real denial of what we're missing out on, like internationally, yeah. By, yeah. by not celebrating black comedians and giving them a platform, yeah. it's, it's weird. People, a lot of the things you hear from commissioners and producers are without the audience for it, it's like, um, are you sure? Because we've got the global audience. Yes. You know, like we're the global majority, really. So when you say we don't have the audience, what they mean is you're talking about the 20 million members of the British public who are adults who might watch it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is very, which is very narrow-minded. So just trying to get people to realise the smallness of whiteness. When you talk about this is what our audience wants, like you're, you're not looking at the whole audience, you're just looking at a tiny part of the audience. Yeah, yeah and it's not what the audience wants because if you go on Netflix or... Look at the cinemas, like that's what people are watching, you know. Look at the highest grossing movies and the highest grossing movie stars. It's like Black Panther, yeah. The Rock, Samuel L. Jackson, like the, the, these, these lists of who makes the most money and which films are the most watched are littered with people who aren't white. Like, yeah. It's just, there's a real delusion about what people want in this country. And it's definitely a delusion that's held by a lot of comedy producers and commissioners. And that's always a struggle. And then in the live arena, is there racism? Yeah, it's the same thing. It's like, we've got a black person on this film, so we don't need another one, you know? <laughs> um, I tend to get a lot of calls when another black, when another black woman cancels and they've got to replace her. And it's just, it's just like, and yeah, yeah, it happens a lot, it happens a lot. And not just for like stand-up, like podcasts and TV shows and stuff. And on the one hand, I think, okay, it's good. You've got somebody who occupies a certain demographic or occupies a certain space, they can't make it. So you want to replace like for like. Yeah. But guess what? If you'd had two people on that lineup anyway, when one person cancelled, you wouldn't have had to mad- you wouldn't have had to madly call around. And also, like we're not a genre. Like if, yeah. if London News cancels and something, and you book me, you're going to get very disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to be very disappointed. It's, it's, it's very different, and yeah, yeah, not, you're not a kind of carbon copy. It's not like a black comedian is going to deliver the same. Kind of, oh, of course not it, and it, it becomes a tick box exercise now listen yeah. I'm not, I don't I say yes to lots of things that where I'm aware that's happened because money's money and the opportunities come from those things yes. but that's you're always aware of the fact that you know these things remind you that you are seen as a minority it's very frustrating I mean I could talk all day about how race gender and other things too and disability disability is a massive thing we don't talk enough about in comedy mm-hmm. it's very hard to access comedy as a disabled person the spaces are not accessible yeah. at all that you know happens upstairs or downstairs late at night 
mm -hmm. uh, very hot transport, but you need to drive, we need access to a car so you can be driven to places, you know, so like lots of things. So it's not very accessible to disabled people, but it's probably, I would say they're the most like, discriminated group, <laughs> to be honest. In, really? In I didn't think of that in terms of the venue. You yeah. Know, physically, you can't actually perform upstairs. There's yeah. no way for you actually to actually get on the stage or get into the venue. That's comedy, crazy. Comedy does very rarely happens in accessible venues. I mean, that's the basic of it. And then when it does happen, it happens very late at night, mm -hmm. often in places that are in the middle of nowhere, you know, where public transport might not be accessible either. If you are vulnerable in that way as, as a person, if you have additional kind of access needs like it's very difficult to suddenly get out of bed in the morning think I want to be a comedian that's a conversation that we, we have that comes up every now and again and then just sort of dies a death but it's massive it's a massive one way more massive than you know we talk we do talk a lot about race and it is true you're disadvantaged in this industry if you're black and there's a glass ceiling and it's ridiculous and there's lots of people who have been denied the careers they should have been given Felix Dexter for example yeah that's a huge yeah. example however but you can turn on the TV and you'll see a black person on TV. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's a weird thing where it's like, we've got all these issues, but if you want to watch a black comedian on TV, you can watch one. They're there. <laughs> We're visible. So there's still opportunities for us that aren't denied to maybe other people. Obviously, I'm talking, you can be black and disabled as well. So imagine if you're black and disabled, you're sort of, you're sort of doubly um, impacted by being at that intersection. No, I, just, I don't want people to think that, oh my God, if I if I get into comedy, I'm going to be entering this world of anti-blackness. And no, it, it really it really isn't. It just means you have a bit more stuff to manoeuvre yeah. and negotiate. It doesn't mean that you can't achieve the things you want to achieve. It just means if you are going to achieve them, you have to do things a bit differently, perhaps work a bit harder or, you know, make decisions that other people wouldn't have to make. Yeah. But it is, I mean, you know, like I said, I, I've just literally... I don't know how I've managed to get a career in comedy. <laughs> but it just, you know, as long as you work and you create, and if you're good enough, you won't slip through the gaps. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting what you're saying because these these are issues that have been going on for years. And you mentioned like the late Felix Dexter. I remember reading something that Stephen K. Amos wrote about basically it's, it's almost like his contemporary is um, Zelani Henry. So if he was booked, you know, he's like, there was no space for anybody else because in everybody else's mind, they've got a black comedian tick mm. on. But I think, you know, we're recording this in a week where not that I watch it, not that it's a bad show, but um, Loose Women had an all black panel. Let's normalize mm. that. Why do you have to have like the tokenism? You know, hopefully, you know, things will move on and you'll, the conversations about comedy panel shows definitely addressing kind of the imbalance. So they're all very male dominated, aren't they, in terms mm -hmm. of the panelists, but they're trying to address the, the gender balance. But let's try and address the ethnicity balance yeah. as well. And, you know, wouldn't it be great? And not, and not just have it as a it's Black History Month, embrace it any time of the year. Wouldn't it be wonderful to turn on the TV and have an all black? Panel, which I think there was, wasn't there, on the that show that Jimmy. He... Oh, Athenbola, the um, yeah. sorry I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. So, so sorry I didn't know has really interesting history. About it was commissioned about three years ago, and they made a one-off oh, pilot. No. Yeah, and they, they and it was the pilot was great actually, but they never they never went to series. And then really? obviously this is the year of, this is the year of Black Lives Matter. So then they commissioned about four episodes for Black History Month again. And it's just it's really frustrating because the show they made today is pretty much the same show they made three years ago. It's just literally, there was just no reason they couldn't go to series. Like when you think about some of the things you see on ITV2, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, I don't watch it. I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking it, but I'm just saying if you, if you can commission, you know, another Keith Lemon panel show, you can, you know, <laughs> what, do, what do other people have to do to yeah. get 
to get work and so it's a very difficult environment where you know you're not being judged by what you're producing you're being judged by someone's appetite for change yeah. which is normally very which is normally very low just going on to the, the the loose women all black panel thing I think you're absolutely right like it's all very well doing these things during Black History Month but you know my utopia is that you, you turn on the tv and you see four black people or four Indian people or four Chinese people mm-hmm. you just kind of watch the bloody show do you know what I mean because when it's an all white panel we have nothing to say exactly and like I said we're not those four black women are four individuals as well who have individual viewpoints and come from I would hope they come from I mean I I know I know Judy so I know I know one of them quite well but you know it's it's you're not all looking at four black women you're looking at Judy Darlene White I forget the other two Kelly yeah Kelly Bryan was on there too so you're looking at four people who have four mass, you know, there's a comedian, there's a newsreader, there's a former singer. So these are not, it's not four black women is what I'm saying. Like, yeah, 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 there are four black women, but there's, there are four humans who, why can't, yeah, because the normal loose women lineup is, that they normally set it up like there's the old one, there's the funny one, there's the fat one or whatever, I don't know. There's like all different personalities. So we need to get away from this flattening of, of our of how we see ourselves like black like yeah. it's just not who we are like even the three of us like we're massively different people and like your sisters and Rick were different so yeah you know if we keep seeing ourselves the way white people see us we'll never yes, get anywhere and we have a very bad habit of, of doing that just generally it's because black communities and diaspora we kind of we even we even start to talk to ourselves referring to ourselves the way white people refer to ourselves yeah it's like it does it's not helpful it's not helpful. And I'm, I'm so pleased that you, you brought that up. I was on a panel recently at work and it was very, I think there's certain moments that were quite triggering, but certain moments that were really enlightening because what you've just said there about our differences and learning to embrace them and not actually being categorised about what how we've learned to like know and sort of talk about our differences. That was one of the main things that came out. And mm. I think I'm really bad for it. You know, I think depending on my environment, sometimes how I have referred to myself in the past or how I discuss our culture now, it has changed slowly and surely, but I think it's down to that knowledge of thinking, how, why am I calling myself this? So back in the day, I, you know, not to kind of use the term derogatively, but you know, somebody, if somebody said coconut, because I am very Yorkshire, I would you know, not embrace it, but I wouldn't pull people up on it. Cause I just, you know, used to think, okay, if that, if that's your that sort of understanding of somebody's very Yorkshire and black, that's cool. Whereas, now I'm just a bit like, you know, how I describe myself. Yeah, how are you doing, number one? But number two, I describe myself or identify as a British Ghanaian. And if anyone's got any issues with that, you know, we'll have a conversation about it. But and I think it's for you to define. It's up yeah, to me to define. No one else can determine what who- kind of behaviour trait is white, yeah. what kind of behaviour trait is black. Actually. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's a massive thing in the comedy industry. I think that I'll tell you, I've, I've told the story a lot because I think it's really interesting. I had this, um, I had this script that I gave to someone who's quite important in the industry he basically just said this is garbage like he used other words but he might have just said garbage it was very harsh feedback and then I sent that same script into something called the BBC Comedy Room and they get like 4,000 scripts a year and they have like 12 or 13 spaces and it's like a mentoring scheme to basically get you know as it's supposed to act like a bit of a launch pad into a script writing career and obviously like you know that's how I started to, to write more and I got through so you know I got through using that same script I, yeah progress through that scheme the only difference was when you apply for the comedy room scheme it's anonymous they don't know who's written it so what happened there and what 
there's a lot, you know, I'm not, my, no, not everyone's going to like what you do. A third of people like what you do, a third of people love it, a third of people hate it. That's just how life is. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. But it's really, I think there's generally when people receive your work and they know you're black, there's an expectation. Then they're just, they're going for your work and they're going, yeah, this is great, but I can't see anything about fried chicken put in a bin. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like it's yeah. something you have to be really aware of. You can observe it with where you see black people present and where you don't. So on ITV too, you're going to see lots of black people because they want the youth audience. And it's hard to talk about these things because this I'm not criticising the black people who take do that work. Like this is not this is not me saying you shouldn't you shouldn't dance on stage. Like when I started doing comedy, I was like I'm not going to dance on stage. I was just talking about this in my part the other day. Just, I always thought, no, I'm not doing it because you know that's an expectation. This is not not every black comedian has to be deaf comedy jam. Yeah, kind of yeah. you know? so I was like why should I like I'm not gonna do something I'm not I'm not tapped on you know I'm just not I'm just not doing it it was but it, was, it wasn't because I don't it wasn't to diminish that style of comedy but it was to say well it doesn't feel natural to me so why should I pretend it is you know and you just have to we have to be really vigilant as to where the spaces we're allowed to be in mm-hmm. and the spaces we're not allowed to be in because more t- more often than not there were spaces white people don't have a problem with us occupying yeah. and then if you want to if I wanted to write a workplace sitcom which is multicultural and anyone can get involved in that's a problem because that's that's their competition isn't it you mm. know we can do that leave that to us why don't you write a show why don't you write a show about jerk chicken so that's so why don't you write a sitcom called Jollof Wars do you know what I mean like that's they if they want you to occupy the spaces they can't so they don't feel like they're missing out yeah um so as a creative, I'm always I'm always aware of that, and I've definitely probably missed out on opportunities because I haven't, you know, I haven't done that. But it's important, I think, if you if you're aware of these things, that you think about whether you want to be part of the problem or part of the solution. Yeah, um, stay true to and yourself. About being authentic, yeah, definitely. absolutely. Yeah, just to be authentic, I think it'd just be very easy for. And I'm not the only, you know, I'm not the only black comedian doing this. But I think a lot of us are like we're not gonna we're not going to occupy a space that white people want to see us in yeah. you know, we're going to do our thing until black people, white people realize we're not just you know black is shorthand <laughs> it's just useful shorthand that explains um that we can use to talk have talk about our shared oppression but if you get a room full of black people and a room full of white people that room full of black people will be diverse yeah. that's diversity you know, a room full of white people, eh, is it diverse? I guess so. But, you know, a room full of black people is diverse. Like, just by definition, you know, people come from all over the diaspora, people have relatives from all over the world. So many languages in that room, so many religions in that room, so many cuisines in that room. Like, we are naturally diverse and we don't, you know, we don't, it doesn't, it, it actually is, it's insane to deny it. <laughs> Yeah. And to look at that room and to expect just one thing to come from it—it's yeah. just bizarre. And that's what we have to. That's what we. That's where we're at now. I think in the creative, in the comedy world, that we're in the comedy world. That's where we're at. We need to stop being seen like a genre. Black is not a genre. It yeah. isn't. I love that. I see that. Yeah. And in your circuit, I know you mentioned earlier that you sometimes you have a, like moments where you're like, I can't believe that so and so. Is in my like friendship circle, these people are maybe grown up to love and watch, etc. My question is, who would you say is your biggest inspiration? It might have changed since you've met them, or maybe you've not met them or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, inspiration. It's really interesting. I would say, in terms of inspiration, it'd be very difficult to think of anyone other than Gina Yajiro, who's been working forever. Yeah. You know, even before I even cared about comedy you know I'd always seen her on telly I'd seen her live a couple of times and she she couldn't have done more mm-hmm. than any, like in this country to to have deserved everything that a top comedian should get you know 
panel shows. She did panel shows. She had pilots. She did hosting. She hosted the mo. Did if you look at Gina's CV before she left to America, it's just staggering. And she, if we want, she is a household name, and you know, like, and then yet the industry were just like, eh. and so she went to America and started again. It was very, you know, like it's quite a famous story now. And now she's like a showrunner on like a on a really hot US television show, and she's got a, a got a part in it. And it's just like there were so many juniors that didn't have the opportunity to go to America. There are so many that just they're now project managers, you know, and it's. Imagine that. Imagine the industry, our British comedy industry said no to Jeannie Azure. Like, what? Years ago, like, maybe five years in Newcastle. Yeah. And she's hilarious. And, oh, and she's great, yeah. She's worked, she's worked so hard. And I guess it's a big thing to, like, uproot yourself from your family for what you know to then go somewhere else to start again. And But she's done it and she's smashing it. But then it's just like, it's similar. As you've mentioned in other, not just in comedy, we see that with acting and lots of our like, homegrown talent is not acknowledged here. It has to go, you have to go overseas to get that acknowledgement. But then the reverse, you don't see that in other ethnicities. Um, but yeah, she's a trailblazer. She's blazing a trail there. And do, do you think that's something you would do if you felt that? Uh, oh yeah, I still have things like to achieve here, but that's, I mean, thinking about it from like, project management point of view yeah like you you want to get to a point where if you make a success of your comedy career or any kind of creative career in America that's very well not only is it lucrative but it's a real indoor it's the potential to kind of you know the potential to grow as a creative in America is just way more than here yeah um the access you have to audiences the access you have to be pushed internationally there's just no denying there's no denying that that's a wonderful opportunity you know if you get to be in a writer's room over there, or if you get to write your own show uh, or act. Yeah, the potential is there, but there's lots of things I've got to do here first. <laughs> there's still a lot. Absolutely. It is, it's really, it's heartwarming to hear both of you say the same person. Um, okay. Because <laughs> I do, I've do, I never, never seen her live or anything, but I've always loved her comedy. Is there any American um, comedy stars that you think are exceptional? Or are you kind of more focused or do you more like the UK scene? No, I used to watch most of the American comedy, so okay. I loved I loved Dave Chappelle. Oh, I used to my God, that's yeah. my favourite. I live yeah, for Dave yeah. Chappelle. Yes. <laughs> Dave Chappelle, kind of his peak kind of years, in the early 2000s, just, he was sort of untouchable, really. I loved Wonder Sykes. I thought her stand-up was always really great. Um, Chris Rock. Yeah. Um, I loved Bernie Mac, Truce O'Neill. It's very hard, I think, for comedians to kind of progress in America so and make a living out of stand-up, but then the ones who do are like you know, they're superstars. Like, they're just so good at their craft. It's just phenomenal. I think maybe because it's such a big country, you just, you have to, you know, so if I drive up to Darlington one day, that's like, what, a four hour drive, do the gig, maybe stay overnight. But like in America, you've got to literally take planes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, 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 what it takes to make it as a comedian there probably perhaps makes slightly better talent or whatever. But yeah, those are, those are the comedians I quite liked. Um, yeah, Bernie Mac's probably my favourite. He always made me laugh. He's just a ridiculous guy. Like, just so his funny. face. Yeah. I, thought <laughs> being, I just, just thought his face. persona, his character was just amazing. Yeah. He, yeah. Smile. He, had funny, he had funny bones. I mean, there's yeah. just no denying. There's no denying his, his greatness. But yeah, I'm just trying to think. I'm really bad at this because I always forget. And then in about 20 minutes time, I'll be like, oh yeah, I like that person too. 
<laughs> yeah, but I remember like it. Like I really, I really liked Chris Rock in the early two thousands. Like he was definitely someone who was at a real comedic peak in that time. Like yeah, he was he was great, and I'm just, I remember seeing him a couple of times. And oh, thinking, wow. Yeah, because yeah, he did like some big tours, some big world tours a few years ago. And Eddie Murphy as well. So I always look to America for st- to watch for stand-up fandom yeah. uh, more yeah. than the UK. But now I'm kind of more immersed in the scene. So I kind of, you know, I watch a lot more British stand-up, obviously. Yeah. So what is your the favourite part of your job? Oh, I don't have to get out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could say something really philosophical about that. I'm one of those people, look, if I've got to get up at... <laughs> If I've got to get out of bed at five or six in the morning, I'll do it. And I've done that. Do you know what I mean? Like for a lot, I'm based in London. And for a long time, I wasn't even working in London. So I was literally leaving the house by half six every day just to get to where I was working. You know? But I'm not a morning person. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm not a morning person at all. Neither was my daughter. I've got, I got, I got a child who sleeps. So she does 12 hours a night. And I, know, I know why. Because she's my child. <laughs> <laughs> She's not as dumb. She's like, she knows if she wants any attention, it's going to come after 8 a.m. <laughs> so I'm a, yeah, it's, really, I, I'm, I, it sounds silly, but one of the things that I feel luckiest about, and obviously before Corona, one of the things I felt luckiest about was that, you know, because I was a contractor in my day job, so I would take breaks between contracts and just do comedy. And when I was on those breaks, I just used to, oh, I love this, staying in bed. It's great. And I get to do that all the time now, so it's cool. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's when I see the tear come down someone's face, you know, they're laughing that way. <laughs> I couldn't care less, but lying. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> gold, absolute gold. Has, has your job changed since becoming a mother? Yeah, so I, I, even before Corona, I, I focused more on writing. That was a very deliberate career move for me. Because I knew that a the live circuit was never going to pay unless you're on TV, or unless you, unless you're doing very big clubs very regularly. And just to be clear, we've only got three big comedy clubs in this country: Comedy Store, Glee, and The Stand, which is up north. So you'll you'll know someone in Newcastle. Yeah. There's only three clubs right. that are like okay. big national clubs that are, give you good money. You know, the rest of them are just like smaller clubs that again they pay you well. You can make a living off of it, but it's not like you know it's it's fine. It's a living. It's fine, and you can do really well. But it's it, it's, you, you probably want to add something else to to your repertoire if you want to get paid a bit more. So I, I decided to do more scripted comedy. So that's why I, I sort of just, I'd done some scripted comedy courses and I read a scripted comedy books and I just started to learn how to write scripts and, and I got into, into doing that kind of work. That's when I knew I wouldn't be able to travel as much because of having a child, but also I knew I probably have to make a bit more money just to make sure that again it's about making it worth it you know I don't have to do this I had a nice job I had a nice job it was well paid it was all right so to make it worth it a lot of it is just like that motivates me a lot to kind of develop my craft and to always make sure I'm able you know to always make sure I've got something more to offer the industry you know that's a quality and that people will just like enjoy and appreciate it's that's very important to me it's great to have you on the platform that you have and I just wonder did you have a lot of support from your family when you made the, the transition? I didn't tell anyone. Oh, I didn't tell anyone. Okay. No, no, I just started doing comedy because I, for two reasons, I think doing comedy and being a comedian are two different things. So I think if you tell people, oh, I'm doing comedy, then they might not understand that there's like a quite a long process you've got to go through before you get any good at it. Yeah. And I didn't need that. I just didn't need that headache. I didn't need people coming to see me at my fifth gig, watching me die on my ass, going, you're wasting your time. And it's, you know, I just sort of didn't need that. I didn't want to explain it. 
And I also, I said this actually the other day to my brother, because we were talking about, I've got twin brother and we were talking about. I didn't um, yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got twin brother and we both had babies on the same day. Isn't that funny? No, no way. Yeah. Wow. Is that mad? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's lovely. They can be like sort of like twins, but not. No, well, do you know, what's well, it's not sad, but they live in Australia. Oh. So that's what's, oh, I wish every day he, he hadn't gone to Australia, but his girlfriend's visa ran out. So he, had to, <laughs> he had to go back. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's, yeah, it's not just, it's not just, it is Australians, it's not just us. It's the, they're, they're kicking everyone out. This was a long time ago. So, you know, I've got to remember, we were talking, and he was talking about how one day one of his friends said, your sister's a comedian. And I was like, and I said to him, you know what? If I have to tell people that's what I do, I'm not working hard enough. Yeah. You know, that's, that was generally, that's, that mentality evolved for me. If I have to tell people um, what I'm doing, I don't feel like I'm working hard enough. It should just be, it should just be in, in the ether. Yeah. Um, like my mum called me the other day and I was like, you on TV? <laughs> and I was like, I'm on TV like, every now and again, actually. Like, you'd be surprised if I pop up. So, and, I, and also like, in my brain, like, I just want this to be normal and it is. So if I keep sending the family WhatsApp group in what I'm up to, like, I wouldn't, if I had a meeting in Bedford about some project that I'm, you know, closing, I wouldn't tell you about it. Yeah. So why would I tell you about other parts of my job, you know? It's so humble. So, I would be yeah. the complete opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it's not humility, it's ambition. So yeah. it's like whatever is happening that excites the person around me I'm like no no that's not even that's not, that's not even scratching the surface of what I wanted to do in the future you know and maybe when I get to that point where I'm like okay this is what I wanted then I'll text people yeah. <laughs> at the moment like and this is the other thing too this is really important it's really easy in the comedy world and in any creative industry to look at a space and to be in it and to be like oh my god I'm so grateful but the person next to you is a white guy that has been doing the same thing week in week out for 20 years I'm not gonna be grateful okay if that guy has the seat on this panel show or whatever and he, he just has it automatically and I've seen him die loads of, or, you know, he's scared to follow me onto stage at a comedy club or whatever. Like, why am I, don't get me wrong, I'm so grateful for work. I'm so grateful for exposure. And I love getting booked for really cool things. Mm -hmm. But there's people, that's literally their Tuesday. It's a Tuesday for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my mentality will always kind of acknowledge the fact that if I deserve to be there, there'll be a limit to my gratefulness. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. This is literally what I do. You know, you, you, it's your loss for not having me earlier. That's, yeah. yeah, I love that mindset. Yeah. It's all mindset and I love yeah. that. But that's evolved. It wasn't, I didn't always, if, you, if we'd done this recording four or five years ago, it'd be a very different conversation. I'd be like, please let me on the week, please. <laughs> but that's good. We all evolve and grow and it's just, yeah, it's brilliant that You've, you've arrived at that and I think that's a really good lesson for everybody wherever you are you know whatever you're doing you shouldn't be grateful to exist I was just thinking the other day sometimes it's like I have in the past had an attitude of being grateful that people have received me well or treated me decently it shouldn't be like that at all you shouldn't no. be for civility it should just be a given yeah no <laughs> I saw, I saw something funny. So I did. Um, so I did something the other day, and it was like on TV and whatever. And you know, they were like, "Oh, can you bring like three changes of costume so we can see what works best on the panel?" And I was like, "Fair enough." So I kind of removed my clothes thingy with all my different blouses and stuff and whatever. And then um, another comedian who I have to say is lovely, by the way, but he's one of those people who's just that's his lane, you know. 
in week in week out takes for granted whatever I'm not saying takes for granted but just, that's just normal that's just Tuesday and I'm just like you you literally bought that top from Mountain Warehouse like this is so this is so normal for you you can just come here you know and your trainers are grey but they was white when you bought them like <laughs> And then it got changed. And I was like, you haven't, you might as well have not bothered me. <laughs> and, and I just thought this is, and I thought it could, does anything, and I wasn't in the eve, it wasn't in the eve, I wasn't in black tie. Do you know what I mean? I was just, you know, just whatever. And that's something that happens often. You just, you realize that God, these people have no idea. You know, when we talk about privilege, like they've got no idea. They can just swan into fucking um, L, L Street Studios and just be like, all right, mate, like I used to go to, I used to work in the quarter cabin and that's how I used to swan into this quarter cabin to go to work every day. And that's how they treat, like, yeah. that's how they treat these institutions, you know? So we we have to, it's, we could take a leaf out of that book. Yeah. yeah. You know, we could be like, oh, actually, like this is, we're begging to get into these spaces that we think are really exclusive. But it's not that fucking exclusive. Look at this, this is my language, but look who you're letting. <laughs> Notwithstanding his talent, by the way, he's a great writer, great comedian, whatever. But I just think it just exemplifies how we hold some things in high self-esteem and how other people mm-hmm. are like, this is normal for me. Yeah. This, is expe- this is the expectation, yeah. um, you think which is interesting. You think comes about as being the child of immigrants in that, you know, that kind of gratefulness to be in certain spaces that perhaps weren't open to them or were yeah. um, or the reason why we're here or they've sacrificed certain things or forgone parts of, you know, extended family cultures so that you can be in this space. So we would, so like in my role, it's taken a while, but I felt this pressure that I not just have to be the part, I have to look the part as well. Whereas I've worked mm. with colleagues who've turned up in like shorts and stuff, and mm. it's like I would never do that because they wouldn't believe if I said that. But yeah, I was yeah. here to do that shift or whatever. But I don't know. Do you, do you find that? But then we're sort of like just. Oh, yeah, absolutely, like, absolutely. We've learned a docility. We we have to reconcile ourselves with the docility that our parents have taught us because of that story. It's like you know, the same thing as works twice as hard, get half as much. But you know, always look presentable, yeah. whatever, and like you know we do that and it's like well other people don't and it's not mentally it's not a great place for us to address inequality from because it makes people around us set the bar higher for us I remember working (laughs) this is years ago this is when I was working in waste management there was we used to get a lot of contractors in from Australia a lot of contractors from Australia come here because the government setup is the same so if you want to work in the public sector, it's really easy. It's the same, the structure is all the same. So, you know, and I remember what, <laughs> this guy came in on his second day, he wore like board shorts and flip-flops. Mm. I mean, could you imagine our parents immigrating from a country? I can't imagine even working in another country and just rocking up to an office in board shorts and flip-flops. Mm. Luckily, one of the managers, he was back as well, just sent him home. <laughs> but I just thought this is just like, I was like, wow. You don't, you really are at home. You literally just got here two weeks ago. You're, <laughs> you're at home, man, for real. So it's, it's totally, and I'm not saying that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's nothing wrong with us having a certain personal standard that we, yeah. we like, but we just need to, it's about, don't think you don't deserve to be in a space and that you have to justify your existence. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember reading lots of testimonies from Windrush victims and they, you know, the things I was hearing, I, it was just like, the, it, it wasn't really passive. It was things that oh, I just thought they'd figure it out. I just thought they'd, I thought they'd know I came here 50 years ago or, you know, I, the, my passport burned in the fire and I didn't bother replacing it. Whereas, you know, like 
this, this, you know, we have this kind of, this whole thing, they will be all right in the end, you know, we, we're grateful to be here. Mentality. So yeah, like you said, it's the grateful to be here mentality, just like house guests, you know, yeah. you go to someone's house, you don't know them very well, you kind of act a little bit like, yes, I would like a cup of tea, please, <laughs> you know. We've done that more than most, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so unlearning that is a massive, is, pro, is a process. I mean, I'll, my, I mean, my children won't be, my children will not be, they'll be polite. <laughs> Yeah. but they won't think they, there'll be no room that I won't teach them to believe that you know room, rooms they should be grateful to be in rooms the room should be grateful that they're in them absolutely. yeah absolutely yeah. Um, oh, I, I do a lot yeah. of comedy about that now like you know where you know it's about time Britain started to be a bit more grateful rather than the other way around yeah powerful I love that yeah. well that's quite a nice segue into the melanin magic question <laughs> so that is what are your hopes and dreams for black british culture in the next five to ten years and do you have any insight on how we're going to get there i would like us generally as sort of black people and black communities in the in the uk diaspora to stop seeing proximity to whiteness as success mm-hmm. so i'd like us to kind of we're constant. It's a, it's a, it's been said lots of times now but the idea of wanting a seat at the table is, is kind of like quite dated and quite boring the table's rubbish the table's boring <laughs> I've seen this table I've been there a few times it's not very interesting to me so and because that's still you know it puts white you know white culture and white creativity at, at kind of up here and it says well we want to join you whatever and I'd just like us to kind of start making our own things mm-hmm. and enjoying our own success and you know event what happens is they all leave their table and they come to ours Mm-hmm. Basically, um, and that's what every other not every other community but you know if you look at other cultures they're not running around going why aren't there why isn't there an Indian James Bond or why isn't why isn't there a, a Chinese person hosting a chat show and by the way there should be all of those things yeah, yeah absolutely in, 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 in that it isn't just about black people being present we are the most we're the most visible minority you open up a newspaper full of black people a magazine full of black people, turn on TV full of black people. One of the biggest myths is that we're not visible. We're fucking visible. Excuse my language. <laughs> we're incredibly visible. Um, the uh, the issue is do we, we don't have control of our image. Mm-hmm. So we, who's, we might be hosting the show, but we're not producing the show. Or yeah. you know, we might be you know we might be playing the, in the football team, but we're not managing the football team. Yeah. So the issue is power. The issue is not presence or visibility. So I would like us to address that. How? Well, look, it's happening. More and more black creators are, are starting their own TV production companies, mm-hmm. I've noticed, which is good. We're starting to create more work, so which we have ownership of. So rather than just like being doing other people's work, we're, we're writing our own scripts, we're making our own shows. We're owning, we own the online space. We own the online comedy space. I mean, it's just, if you watch online British comedy, you know, like Munya Chihuahua and obviously like Mo Gilligan and people like Judy Love, like, that's our space, you know. So we we're getting there, and yeah. So that's that's what I'd like to see. I'd just like us to, how you know, we keep asking like the BBC, ITV, Channel Four. We keep asking them. It's like they're not going to give us what we want. Yeah. How can we make them come to us? And they've been doing that recently. So hopefully, we just continue as we are. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. 
Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. Love it. So insightful. I've really, really enjoyed yeah. today. Obviously, you're so easy to talk to. And I apologize for my dry lips. I've been staring at my lips the whole time. And I'm like, they're so dry. I've just, I've literally just, I was, just, I was at the supermarket and it's cold, it's blistery, it's windy down here today. And I've got, um, yeah, so I've got, to have to, I've got some shea butter. I'm going to rub into my lips. <laughs> you look fabulous. You look amazing. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. Um, so just so our listeners have a chance to get in touch with you, what's the best handles and what social media platforms can they follow you on? Just, um, it's my name and everything. So I'm mostly on Instagram and Twitter. So it's Athena Kablenu. I used to say this thing, if you can't spell my name, you won't get my jokes. So don't worry about it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, Athena, if you just type in Athena and comedy and access to my podcast, and I tend to promote things that I'm doing Um and I remember on my Instagram and my Twitter, and there's lots of banter going on on my Twitter as well. So do join me uh, for that. Um, yeah, that's that's how you can find me if you want to see me. Amazing. Oh, thank you. Well, that's that's it from us today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real no. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I remember when you first tagged me, and I was like, "Why are these people tagging me? Like, <laughs> well, I don't understand." <laughs> Afro lead. I must have tagged the wrong person. Oh no, no, definitely not. But uh, thank you and. Um, yeah, to our listeners, join us again next time.